Father, we thank you for your perfect word. Thank you for keeping it for us through these many centuries now that we might be able to know what you have to say to your church. And so, Lord, we ask now that you'd use your word, a sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that you would uh, do the work upon us, though it may be painful, do the work upon us that we need to make us more and more and more like our dear Savior. May we be holier when we leave because your word has pierced our souls. And this we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, we used a portion of chapter 26 to confess our faith. It's about the communion of saints. And you saw a couple of things there I want to point out to you that we'll come back to throughout this text. One is that we're united to Christ Jesus. That's the very foundation for our communion. Everything we enjoy in this context as saints is because we're united to Christ Jesus. As I said at the graveside of Joey Gooden on Friday afternoon uh, to the family, and I, as I always do, uh, be reminded for saints who die in Christ, their body is united to Christ. So you're going to lower it in the grave. But that body is united to Christ. That's the, that's the foundation. That's the surety for the resurrection. Christ the first fruits, and then we after Him. And so we're united to Christ. But notice also being united to one another in love, they, speaking of us, those of us who are united to Christ, have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged. Notice this is not a suggestion. If you're a Christian, you are obliged. That means obligated. Obligated to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So we're not only to do good to one another for our spiritual welfare, but also for our physical welfare. The communion of saints. It's a wonderful doctrine. Let's look at it here. This passage begins with a therefore, and so you have to stop and, and think about what it's there for. Therefore, brothers, brothers there inclusive, men and women believers, male and female believers, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us. So the therefore there refers us back to what's gone before. It's what's gone on before chapter 7 through 1018. And it's all about Christ, what He's done. Therefore, because you have this foundation in Christ Jesus, and then He appeals to some of just a brief uh, brief little opening here to tie together everything he said from 7-1 through 10-18. And, and so the foundation is laid. Let me remind you, just as an introduction, how important foundations are. If you don't build a good foundation, your house will not last very long. It may last 10 years or 50 years, but it won't last very long. It may even last a hundred years, but it won't last without a good foundation. It'll eventually start coming apart. You'll start seeing cracks in the corners. 
You'll start seeing the brick pull away from one another if it's a brick home. You'll start seeing uh, boards pop loose and go di different directions. You'll start seeing doors that mysteriously close. Now that may be because the door hanger hung them wrong, but it may be because there's a foundational problem. Those doors aren't staying hinged like they're supposed to. The Bible tells us, Jesus taught us about this. He said, the man who builds on sand is a fool. And then he says, the man who builds on the stone, on the rock, is a wise man. Stark contrast there. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, okay, for you wise men, you wise men who built your, your, your lives and you've placed your hope, your future on Christ, I want to talk to you a little bit about who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do. As John Brown of Edinburgh said, here we have this turning point from the dogmatics, that is from the, from the heavy theological to the practical. Now some of you are saying, yeah, I wish you'd got to the practical sooner. Well, the practical wouldn't be practical if it didn't have the doctrinal foundation. And you wouldn't have the basis for this, found, you wouldn't have the foundation you need. So here's what would happen. You would try to do all these wonderful things that we're going to look at here. You're going to try to keep the let us draw nears, let us hold fast, let us consider how. You're going to try to do those, but you're going to do them in the flesh instead of in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. And you'll become disenchanted and discouraged and you'll quit and you won't know if you're a Christian or not because you're trying to do it all in the flesh. So if you don't have this foundation in Christ, if you don't have your feet solidly sunk in the concrete of Christ, this is bad news that's about to follow. But as it is, this is good news. So let's, let's look at it. First thing I want you to see is the, the foundation. Or if you, want to, if you want to follow the alliteration, you know, I'm going to do a series of P's here. So the principia, the foundation, the, the, the fundamentals of the communion of saints. He restates them. He restates what he said in chapters 7, 1 through 10, 18. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is just another way of saying the death of Christ. He shed his blood for us. He died for us. The death of Christ. That's the first and most uh, uh, foundational matter that Jesus Christ came lived a perfect life, and He went to the cross and He died for us. He shed His blood. And so therefore, since we have confidence, our confidence to enter the holy places, and here He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. He's talking about the communion that we have with Christ even now. The communion we have between earth and heaven. You understand you're supposed to have that. You understand your eternal life began the moment you believed in Christ. Eternal life is not something you get at death. That's too late. Eternal life is something that begins by grace, through faith, in Christ, 
in your life in your lifetime. And right then and there, we have that open communication line with our God in heaven. The Holy Spirit taking our poor earthly groans and communicating them. The Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And so, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ to take away our sins. And by the way, that's a prerequisite, isn't it? If we're going to have any relationship to the Father, if we're going to have any avenue of communicating with the Father, there must be the blood of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? You understand why I'm saying that? Because if Christ did not die for you, then you remain at enmity with God. Enemies don't talk. Enemies certainly don't enjoy close, sweet communion. They may shout at each other from a distance. They may shoot missiles at each other. But they don't commune. They don't enjoy that. So the blood of Christ to reconcile us to the Father is essential. And so the new living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. We see the death of Christ and His blood. And then verse 20, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. His resurrection is in, in view here. This new way, this resurrected way. And so He he died, and then He was buried, and then He was raised. This newness of life, this new way of life, this resurrected life that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And then notice verse 21, not only the death, the blood of Christ, the resurrection, the new living way that He opened for us through the curtain, and third, the intercession of Christ. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we've already seen this back in chapter 7, verse 25. He lives continually to intercede for us as our great priest. And so the writer here has basically summarized what he said. And this we've seen this already. This is not unusual for him. He likes to summarize. He likes to recapitulate. So he does again to be sure we've got it. Therefore, because of this foundation that I've established for you already, now let me tell you how you're supposed to live. What's next? Because listen, it's not enough to say you believe unless there's something next. James said this. What kind of faith is that? What kind of faith doesn't do anything? What kind of faith is, is lame? What kind of faith... Is, 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 is lazy. What kind of faith? He says, that's not a faith at all. The faith that doesn't work is not a faith. It's not a saving faith. It may be a, a, an historical faith. It may be a misplaced faith, but it's not a saving faith, James says. And so it's natural then he'd say, okay, here's where we've put our faith. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, first thing, the foundations, 19 through 21. 
Second thing I want you to see, the propulsion. What propels us for our communion? And it's the series of commands. Now these aren't in the Greek. They're not given as commands, but because of the construction, the let us, verse 22, the let us in verse 23, and the let us in verse 24 serve as commands. It's as though he's commanding us. Let us do these things. So now that your, your faith is in the right place, firmly upon Christ, His death, His resurrection, His continual intercession for us, because of that, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near. A divine exhortation to draw near. Draw near where? to holy places. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because that's the question you have to ask, draw near to what? Because he didn't say, does he? Well, he does. He's already said he's opened for us a new and living way through the curtain. He's talking about this wonderful intercession that we have, this, this relation we have to the great God of heaven, the transcendent one. If you, if you turn back later and look up the holy places in verse 19, it'll run you over to Revelation 1-6 probably. And there we begin to realize that that's what the writer has in mind. Let us draw near to these holy places or the holy place as it is in Revelation 1-6. Let us draw near to that. In other words, we're to be heavenly minded. Let us be heavenly minded. We're not to be unequally yoked in this world. We're, not to, we're supposed to be heavenly yoked, heavenly minded. So let us draw near with a true heart. And how? In full assurance of faith. We draw near through faith. And that's consistent, isn't it? All the New Testament, all the Bible indeed, tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. So we sit down to pray, but we're not believing. James says, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. You must pray believing. Let us draw near. Let us enter into the communion with Christ in the holy places, in the heavens, through faith. Some of you parents may have done this. I used to do this when the children were little bitty, you know, we'd be having our family devotion time and and so after I'd read a passage I would ask them little questions and just required a single word answer and I'd say there's just just one word will answer this uh, the temptation is to say Jesus but more often the right answer and I finally said let me let you in on a clue you'll almost always be right if you say faith And that's true. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Pray believing. And so he says here, we can, we can enter with a true heart. That's the measure of a true heart. A measure of a true heart is full assurance of faith. But notice how you come to have that full assurance of faith is your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let me ask you something. Are your conscience clean this morning? 
Have your consciences been washed clean by the blood of Christ? Can you sit here and say, I have a clean, clear conscience? Because Christ Jesus shed his blood, he's washed me clean, and I'm living by faith in Christ. Now I realize everyone from time to time sins. Scriptures tell us that. In fact, John says if any man says he didn't sin, he's a liar. And that's what necessitates what we did earlier in the service, and that is confess our sin. Lord, we have a sin debt. We need it taken care of. And then go to Christ for that wonderful word of pardon once more, to have our conscience cleared. No doubt people sitting here this morning with conscience that are heavy laden because of sin. And so they need them sprinkled clean. And that comes from Christ. Notice not just our conscience, our bodies need to be washed with pure water. There's been all sorts of stuff done with the pure water there, making it baptism. I don't think that's the point. The Holy Spirit is likened to water elsewhere, to washing of the Holy Spirit, Titus tells us. Our bodies need to be kept clean. Now, I'm not talking about getting in the tub and the shower, guys. I know some of you boys don't like that. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about our bodies becoming holy temples for the service of the Lord. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, that our bodies are holy temples. He says that when we sin, sexual sins, for, for certain he talks about, are sins against our own body. They make our body dirty because they're not carried out in the bonds of marriage. Our bodies washed. Notice, though, most importantly here, the total, totality of our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come to save our souls. He came to save our bodies, too. Our souls, conscience representative here. Our bodies. And so it shouldn't surprise us because Christ came to save body and soul that on the day of resurrection, guess what we're going to get? We're going to get a new body. So our souls that if we die before Christ comes, we'll be with Christ in the heavens. Our bodies will then be raised from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable. I tell you what, with all the funerals the last 15 months, I've just about memorized 1 Chronicles 15. From perishable to imperishable. He saved us in our totality. And that's the reason, by the way, that He gave us elders for the church to take care of the souls of the people and He gave us deacons to take care of the bodies of the people. And you need that. And if you don't submit to your elders and deacons helping you, you're not enjoying the fullness of the church and the fullness of your salvation that Christ has for you. So what propels us? Well, first the command, the divine command. Let us, let us what? Let us draw near. And then the divine presence. Where? The holy presence. And then the divine power. The power of the Spirit cleansing us, washing us, cleansing our conscience, cleansing our bodies, making them holy and useful vessels. So, the basis for our communion, and then what propels our communion, and then 
the professing nature of the communion or the confessing if you'd rather use a C there. That comes next, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The command again to have a profession of faith. Jesus said, whoever doesn't confess me before others, I will not own them before my Father. It's required of us. The writer of the Proverbs said, whatever is in the heart bubbles up and spills over through our mouths. In other words, if Christ is in your heart, you can't keep that secret. So let us confess. Let us confess Hold fast. Notice, hold fast. He's not just saying confess, but hold fast to it. He's telling us here, we can't turn loose of this. We own this truth. This truth that we say we believe. We, we have to own it. We have to take it as our own. The Puritans talked much about owning the covenant and owning the faith. That's what they were talking about. Take hold of it. It's yours. Don't turn loose of it. Notice it's a confession of hope. And the hope is based, he tells us, in the one who promised it. Did you see that? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because the wavering person, the double-minded man, is unstable in all of his ways. So no wavering here. Why? Because Christ is faithful. See, if you're wavering, I want to suggest to you that if you stumble, if you stumble around, I, you know, yeah, I believe this, or I don't believe, but it's because you're looking at yourself. And you need to look at Christ. The one who promised is the faithful one. Not you, not me. Don't look at me. I remember so well those words of my Indian friend in Louisville. Every Sunday he would stand to pray for the pastor as the associate pastor. He would stand to pray and he would say, Oh dear God, hide Pastor Bill behind Jesus so we can only see Jesus. Don't look to men. They waver. They stumble. They fall. Look to Christ. And then you'll have a confession that you can hang on to. Steadfastly. Finally, notice the provocative relationship of the communion of saints. Here's where it all comes together. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's just start there. Another command, let us consider. So we're supposed to sit and think. How can I stir up Joe? How can I stir up Margaret? How can I stir up Jimmy to love and good works? Okay, I got an idea. Then you get on the phone, you call, and you do it. Maybe you just... Get on the phone, call, and go pick them up and go do it together. Notice all through this, let us, let us, let us. 
This is not let me, let me, let me. Though we are individuals and we are involved at an individual level to some degree, this is a corporate thing. This is about the church being the church. This is about something bigger than any individual in this building this morning or any individual in the world today. The church of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Let us consider. This is why it's so dangerous to neglect regular attendance upon worship of God, to neglect the communion of the saints. The scripture is all about God blessing His people corporately. And what is it that happens? We see this illustrated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When an individual sins, yes, difficult things often come upon that individual. But not just that individual. The whole covenanted community often suffers because the one is part of the whole. And the whole is connected to the one. So let us, let us consider how to stir up one another. So think about this as you go out today. Do I do that? Do I, do I contemplate how to encourage other people in the church? To what? To stir them up. Stimulate them is another way to translate it. To what? To love. Okay, well, that's kind of passive. Yeah, but the next is not. Good works. How to love one another better, how to love the Lord better, but also how to do for the Lord and how to do for one another better. Love and good works. And then notice the context for it again. Not neglecting to meet together. And then he says the sad thing, as is the habit with some. It's the habit of some. It was then, it is now. You know, when you take that vow to support the worship and the work of the church to the best of your ability, uh, the best of your ability is not once a month. It's not giving, giving a year-end gift once a year. It's not saying hi to people once a month as you walk out the back door. That wouldn't, you wouldn't consider that to be the best of your ability in any other area of life. If you showed up for work once a month, that wouldn't be the best. It wouldn't last long either. Don't forget the assembling of yourselves together. And this can have nothing else. And all the scholars, all the commentators agree. Anybody wants to wiggle out of this one, you've got no grounds for it. You've got no room for it. Everybody agrees. Not neglecting to meet together is about corporate worship. This whole passage is about us. It's about us corporately. This terminology is used, this meeting together word in the Greek is used in the Old Testament for the synagogue meetings and for the temple meetings. So you can't get away from this is This is talking about worship on Sunday in the Lord's house with the Lord's people. Don't neglect it but encouraging one another. And then he gives a little, uh, all the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? Well, here's the day of judgment. All the more as you see the day of judgment coming. So, we've seen the basis for our communion together. We've seen what propels us
we've seen then what we're supposed to do, one of the main things we're supposed to do is profess. We're supposed to have words about this great faith and their words of hope. And then we're, we see how provocative it is. It's each of us pr probing one another and prodding one another. Or as I like to say, poking one another. Not, not belligerently, not demeaning, but did you notice encouraging them? to love, stirring them up, stimulating them, not haranguing, but encouraging to love and good works. In all this, faith is all important, as I've said already. The day drawing near Christ's coming. We're to live a life, if you go on down to verse 35, which we'll see next week or the week after, confidently. We live our lives, not withdrawing from or neglecting the communion of the saints, but by faith looking to Christ, obeying Christ's word, professing the faith, provoking one another to loving good deeds confidently. When it, as we read this last night, we all commented around the bedside there. What a different church the church would be if we lived this passage. Particularly that last exhortation, that last command. If we all considered how to stir up one another to love and good works. Maybe, someday, covenant will be recognized and be known as that church that they, they really, they stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Those people are on the phone, they're on emails, they're, on, they're in people's homes, they're at the restaurants together, they're, they're, they're stimulating one another to love and good works. And so Christ will be honored and His church blessed. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful text and ask now that you would drive it deep into our souls that we might be a people worthy of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 455, And Can It Be?